Well, I would ask you to take your Bibles and open them to the book of Acts. If you are visiting here, if this is your first Sunday, we're studying the book of Acts. We are going through it, thought by thought. We have left off here at chapter 12, starting at verse 20, and we're just going to see our stability of God there in a very unstable world. This past week, um, Dave Sutton and I were having a conversation, and we were talking about how things have changed in the world. Specifically, we were talking about how things have changed in the church since we were younger. It's not like we're that old, but we can go back to what it was like when we were kids and, and what the church felt like and the way we did the church is different than the way it's done today. Just structure, setting, you, you know, just all these kinds of things. And we were talking about this as pretending like I probably we were older than we were. Right now, I'm joking. We were just sitting around chatting about this. And, uh, and we were talking about how, you know, some of the changes have been good, some of the changes have been bad, you know, just kind of talking about the differences and what it was like, in, you know, in the early 1970s walking into church versus today and, and, and the differences of the feel. And, and some people, like I said, they, they celebrate those changes and they say, this is great. And to other people, they bemoan those changes. Probably all depends on how old you are, determines how you feel about those changes. And, uh, but, but we've seen those changes. And, and change is actually one of the, the constants of life, isn't it? You don't feel change when you're younger because you're just not around enough to recognize the change. But things do change. You think about not just the changes in the church, but even changes in the world. You know, when my parents were growing up in the 1930s, you know, they were unaware of things going on in smaller countries in the world or countries that are outside of you know, the basic knowledge of geography. And, and yet in our world today, an earthquake could happen in some small region of the world and our gas prices can go up 20 cents instantaneously. I mean, we live in a much more globalized world and, and, and it's changing. And that, that globalization is changing the way people think about things. It's changing the way we respond to things. It's changing the way that we deal with life and culture. We also, there's been a, like I think a change that I have noticed not just in like the culture and the church, but, but even in the attitude of the world out there, secularization has taken over in the world, right? What I mean by secularization is that uh, the place that God is in our culture, in our community, is a lot less than it was 40 years ago. If there was a problem in a community 40 years ago, they probably wouldn't bring in a pastor or two to weigh in on the situation. How can we help fix this problem? Today, Pastors would not be brought into a situation like that because God has been marginalized and it's not part of the community thought. You, church is just a private thing. It's a personal exploration, but it doesn't have a public voice. It can't speak to the culture around us. And so these kind of changes happen. And like I said, as you get older, you feel these changes. And, and as you feel them, uh, you know, it can have an impact on the way that you can process the world around you. It's hard for the church now uh, in dealing with all these changes because we have to think a little bit more like missionaries in our world than statesmen. You, you know, 30 years ago, you probably could hang up a sign on your church saying, Awana is here, and people in the community that didn't go to church would go, oh, good, they have an Awana. Today, you can put a sign up, Awana is here. Most people drive by going, what in the world is that? What's Awana? That's not a, a slight against Awana. I'm just saying that it's secularized, and, and we, don't ha- we can't use our verbiage anymore. 
We've got to think a little bit more like missionaries in the world and a, and a little less as, as statesmen. And all, all those changes take place. And when they take place, they create stress. Sometimes you can stand at the present looking at the past going, what happened? Why aren't we? I wish we were back there. We could pick whatever point in time we want to pick and we want to say, oh, I wish we were back here. Some people, if they're younger, stand at the present saying, I can't wait to shed the past. We got to move forward and, and go on to the new thing. And, 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 and we can kind of get all caught up in the culture. And sometimes it's easy to even place the success of God on the culture. Notice what's happening in the world and all these things that are going on as if God is going, wow, yeah, secularization didn't count for that. I don't know what to do. As if God is bound to this. It's easy to feel that way. Well, what, how would God want us to respond to this? I believe that Acts chapter 12 is a very strategic chapter in the book of Acts. In fact, it's one that I think is oftentimes overlooked because it, it just has a couple miracle stories in it and, and, uh, and, and it, it in some ways seems kind of a, a unique book. But God is trying to, or a unique chapter, but easy to blow past. But I think God is trying to tell the church something in this chapter. They're about ready to go into the world to bring the gospel. They're about ready to launch into a worldwide mission. As they're doing that, the world around them is changing. In a few short years, they went from being able to stand on the steps of the temple, proclaim the gospel, and have 5,000 people get saved, to now needing to hide out because the government is going to make Christianity illegal. They went from being out in the open to now suddenly being killed and martyred for their faith. That's change. That's massive change, isn't it? We're not just talking about a change from sitting in pews to pew chairs. We're talking about from something being legal to illegal. From, from being able to proclaim it boldly in public to proclaiming it boldly in public and then getting your head cut off for it. How does the church respond to that? What confidence should they have as they move forward? Acts chapter 12 is presented here to tell us something very important. The world might change. Kings might come up. Kings might arrest people. Kings might kill people like they did James. All this stuff can go on, and the ground can be shifting all around you, but there is one thing you need to know. God does not change. He is constant. God is in control. And His mission will continue. That's what chapter 12 is telling us. As they're about ready to launch into a complex, changing world, they are not to keep their eyes on the fact that, oh my, the Romans now are making it illegal to be Christians. What are we going to do? Oh, you remember the glory days when we could preach and open? And they weren't supposed to whine. They were to stand there and say, it doesn't really matter. Paul said in 2 Timothy, I am in prison, but the gospel is not bound. He was confident of that truth confident of that truth. That's what this chapter's about. So here's what we, last week we studied it. We saw Herod arresting James, killing him, then arresting Peter, threatening to kill him. God miraculously frees Peter. And then Herod, something amazing is going to happen to Herod. He is going to be killed by God. And it's going to be an amazing moment where God says, listen, 
I don't care what you do. I'm still in control. So we're going to see this today. We'll see the death of Herod. We're going to see the limited power of man in this text. And we're going to see the sovereign power of God. And the goal, I believe, and I think this is the aim of Luke as he writes this, is to, to help us to not get our, keep our eyes on the shifting, changing sands of culture and the world and all of the things and to suddenly begin to tie the success of God to the world. And instead to fix our eyes on God, the one who doesn't change, the one who continues to keep going, and the one who will continue to carry out his work until he's done. And the focus isn't on the culture, the focus is on God. And that's what this text, I believe, is intended to teach us here. So let's look at it here together. Let's look at the limited power of man. Look at verses, uh, verse 20 with me here. It says, Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. Okay. Now, this is a unique part in the story because what you kind of have is right before this, Peter is imprisoned. It's the night before he's going to be executed. Then God miraculously frees Peter. And then Peter goes into hiding. And then we get to this weird part of the story. Suddenly, Herod goes off into uh, Caesarea. He's up by these two coastal regions of Tyre and Sidon. They're up north, up on the water, the coastal cities. And uh, we don't really know what's happening here. Basically, the, the, the main picture here is this, that somehow a, a dispute arose between Herod and these two cities. Now, these two cities have a pretty historic connection with Israel. It began with David. David began to trade with Tyre and Sidon uh, when he was king. And a trade ag- agreement came. And here's the reason why. Tyre and Sidon were coastal cities. So a lot of the goods that came from, uh, from Greece and other parts of the world would come in through those coastal cities. So they, they own the ports, right? So they're the import people. And so the stuff coming from other countries, wood and, and precious metals and things that they can't get out of the ground in Israel, were coming through that port. The problem with Tyre and Sidon is because it's a port city, it's just all on sand. So they can't farm. Well, Israel, they can farm, right? So an agreement is made. Trade. David says, I'll trade with you, farm, if you, uh, you know, get, get us goods and stuff at, without heavy taxes and tariffs and things like that. So that arrangement, political arrangement, was set up. After the, the Jews were sent off into Babylon, and when they came back, uh, and they were rebuilding the city, Tyre and Sidon helped provide supplies and goods to rebuild Jerusalem. Very tight relationship. Herod now has taken over most of Judea, the southern part of Israel, and he is mad at this city and has decided, I'm cutting off trade. You're not getting any of our farm goods. This is not good for Tyre and Sidon. And so they go to Herod's assistant, his chamberlain, which is basically his like, chief advisor, and they work out some kind of a deal. We don't know what the deal is, but basically, hey, can you kind of back Herod off here, this, you know, whatever, and they worked out some kind of deal. And, and so basically, Blastus is the, the guy who was the chief advisor for Herod. He said, yeah, absolutely, and they work out this deal. Now, what that does is that is now going to allow Herod to come into the city and uh, make a presentation, and that's kind of where our story picks up. The, the day that Herod comes in is on a, on a day that where they were celebrating Caesar. 
Caesar would set up these uh, different days of celebrations where they would celebrate him. And uh, in all the different regions would have these big celebrations, week-long celebrations, and, and politicians would make speeches, and it was just this kind of like, a, like Memorial Day for us, like just everybody's doing their own little celebrations along the way, but in this case, they're honoring Caesar. So on that particular day, uh, Herod's going to come in during one of the celebrations and make a speech, and this is where our story picks up. Peace has just been made between these two cities and Herod, and, and so now we're at verse 21. On an appointed day, that is the day of Caesar, and I'll tell you why I'm saying that here, where I get that from. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took a seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a god and not of man. Now Luke is a little thin on the details here, because this was a very well-known story in Israel. Everyone knew this story. In fact, the historian Josephus, who lived during this time period, wrote an account of this, and he fills in some of the background, and I want to read to you his account. Okay, Josephus tells us what what had happened. Listen to this account. It's kind of cumbersome words, but hopefully this will make sense. It says, Now when Agrippa, which is Herod, had reigned three years over all Judea, he came to the city of Caesarea, which was formerly called Strato's Tower, and there he, he exhibited shows in honor of Caesar, right? This is the Caesar celebration. At which festival a great multitude was gotten together of the principal persons, and such were the dignity through his province. On the second day of which shows he put on a garment made wholly of silver, complete silver robe, okay? I'm thinking Jackson 5. Okay. <laughs> That's totally what I thought. <laughs> you know, just complete silver, right? Glitty 70s disco, okay? Sorry, I probably ruined the whole text for you there. I should not tell you what I think when I read these things, okay? On the second day, which is so put on garments made wholly of silver and of a contexture truly wonderful and came into the theater early in the morning, at which time the silver of his garment being illuminated by the fresh reflection of the sun's rays upon it shone out after a surprising manner and was so glorious as to spread horror over those that looked intently upon him. And presently his flatterers cried out, one from one place, one from another, though not for his good, that he was a god. And they added, Be thou merciful to us, for although we hitherto revered thee only as a man, yet shall we henceforth thee only as a superior to mortal nature. Okay, so early morning, the sun has a little bit more of an amber hue to it, right? you got an entire suit of silver, and that sun reflects, and it shoots off these rays, and it's blinding people, and they begin to say, oh, you're a god, you're a god, you're this wonderful god, I can't believe we didn't acknowledge you as god, and they're repenting of not acknowledging him as a god. So quite a moment. Josephus, I like his little statement. He says, they kept calling him God, not for his good, right? because it's true. It doesn't end well for Herod. But at this moment, he's taking this in. Now, there's something you need to know about Herod. Very important you need to know about him. Herod is half Jewish. His mom was Jewish. He was very familiar with the Jewish laws, and he's very familiar with the first commandment. You shall have no other gods. He knows this. He's fully aware of this. But he's standing there, 
I don't know if he thought this would happen, but he's standing there accepting the praise and the people are repenting. Now at this moment, before the story concludes, this is quite an interesting moment for the church. For the first time, a Roman official has murdered a Christian. The reality of the situation is things are going from bad to worse. Things are getting tough for them. If the Romans continue down this road and they begin to accept the the killing of Christians, it's going to be really tough for the believers. It's going to be super tough for them. And now, not only is the guy who's murdering them getting more and more fame and popularity, now people are calling him God. So now the murderer is being called a God. This is pretty intense stuff going on. This is change, isn't it? It's change. Just a few short years earlier, they were able to stand in the temple, and all they had to deal with was some temple guards arresting them and threatening them, but nothing bad happening there. And now the guy who's in charge of their region, who holds the power of the sword, is standing there, accepting the praise as if he's a god, dressing like he's a god, and, and, and just fueling his arrogance. It's quite a moment. What is the church to do? What does God want us to do? What God wants us to do is not to look at Herod. God doesn't want us to see that moment. God doesn't want us to look at a political system. God doesn't want us to look at ISIS and say, oh, it's over, forget it. God doesn't want us to look at the cultural changes and and something that might happen by the Supreme Court that would absolutely undergird any moral fiber in our society and say, that's it, it's over. God doesn't want us to keep our eyes on man because men don't rule the world. Psalm 2 says the Lord in heaven laughs at the kings of the earth because he knows what will come. He knows what the end of the story is. And so... God quickly gets the attention of the world. This account of what happened to Herod was a world-renowned account. Everyone knows of it. It's in secular literature. It's in secular histories. This moment with Herod was well-known, well-documented. God made sure this wasn't just recorded only in the Scriptures. He wanted to make sure it was recorded for the whole world to see that Herod doesn't rule anything, that God is in control. So this now forces us to look at the sovereign power of God. Let's look at our second point here. Look at verse 23. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Now we'll explain what happened in the story here in a minute, but but basically though as he's standing here, all of a sudden he's accepting this praise He drops to the ground with stomach pains. And it turns out, as we'll see, tapeworms eat him from the inside out. Right? A worm is going to kill this guy, right? He's not God. He's not God. Now, tapeworms, I know, are big, but at the end of the day, you know, there's still a worm eating this guy from the inside out. He's not a God. He doesn't have control. Josephus continues what happened. Let me read to you how Josephus explained what had happened here. Some extra pictures here just so you can get a a feel of this. Josephus says, Upon this, the king neither did rebuke them nor reject their impious flattery, right, as they're calling him God. He says he didn't rebuke it. 
which he should have because he was Jew, half Jewish. He knew that this was wrong. But as he presently afterward looked up, he saw an owl sitting on a certain rope over his head and immediately understood that this bird was a messenger of ill as he had once been a messenger of good tidings for him. And he fell into the deepest sorrow. So apparently he saw an owl and he got scared. And then what happened? A severe pain also arose in his belly and began in a most violent manner. He therefore looked upon his friends and said, now this is what Josephus said, Herod said. This isn't in the scriptures, but uh, there's several accounts of this, extra biblical accounts that say Herod said something along this line. I, whom you call a god, am commanded presently to depart this life. While providence thus reproves the lying words you just now said to me, and I, who was by you, called, an immor- called immortal, and immediately am immediately to be hurried away by death. But I am bound to accept what providence allots, as it pleases God. For we have by no means lived ill, but a splendid, happy manner. I, you know, I lived a good life, but I'm going to die. That's what he said. At the end of the day, what happened? Josephus says the became, became so violent, they carried him off to the palace. And rumor went around everywhere that he died very quickly. Now the point is this. Whether he said all those things or not, Josephus records it as if he was there. The point is this. He's not God. God is God. And the focal point isn't Herod. It isn't what he's going to do. The focal point isn't Nero, who's going to unleash the next wave of persecution upon the church. The focal point won't be any of that. The focal point aren't the the false religions that come up. The focal point aren't the changes that occur. The focal point isn't any of that. The focal point is in God. And in fact, God wants us to know something. God wants us to know something very important. Not only will he not share his glory with another person, but he is in control and that his work and his word will continue no matter what goes on in the world. Because I want you to notice how this passage ends. Look at verses 24 and 25. But the word of God increased and multiplied, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. That's an interesting end to this account. Chapter 12 begins, Herod the king arrests James and kills him. It ends with, Herod the king is killed by God and the word multiplied, meaning this. Even though Herod's on his rampage, even though believers, more than just Peter and, and, and James were arrested, other believers were arrested. It says he unleashed a persecution. He treated believers badly. He was beating people. If you were a Christian, there were many that were whipped, many that were scourged, many that, that endured heavy persecution. That's how the chapter begins. But it ends with, but the word of the Lord, notice what it says, multiply. Not just it grew a little bit. It grew exponentially. What's the point? You can't stop what God's going to do. We could sit around and bemoan all the changes we want. We could sit around and say, oh, this is happening, that's happening. What's going on with our culture? What's going on with our church? What's going on with our community? The secularization, blah, 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 globalization, blah, blah, blah. And we could sit around and I could just complain for like the next 40 minutes about everything that's going on. And God's going to go, stop it. It doesn't matter. I'm God. (laughs) My work and my word will go forth, period. Stick a fork in it. That's the truth. Stick a fork means it's done, by the way, if you want to know what that means. I know I use that a lot, but it's a fishing term. Okay, (laughs) Eat it. Done. That's the reality. 
The world can get worse, but the word will multiply. That is the piece that we need to understand as we get into chapter 13 when the church is getting ready to send out this first missionary team of Barnabas, Saul, and John Mark. The church is going to release two of their key shepherds and leaders and send them off. They're going to add this guy, John Mark, onto the team. And they're going to go out to a difficult, complex world. They're going to go out to a world where by the time they finish their missionary work, it's going to be completely illegal to be a Christian. By the time it's done, the world will have gone from a bad place with Herod to an even worse place. But God wants us to know something. He cannot be stopped. The word will continue. We don't have to fret. We stand with courage and with boldness because this is God's world. It always will be God's world. The terrorists don't control it. People don't control it. I don't control it. Bad leaders don't control it. Bad parents don't control it. Rotten kids don't control it. Nothing controls it other than God. Rest in that. There's where the rest comes from. So, what do we do with this text? Let's wrap it up. I believe 12, this, this is an important chapter, and, and we cannot really understand the mission of the church without understanding the power of God. The mission of the church starts and ends and is fueled by the power of God. That's why Jesus, when he's commissioning his disciples, he says, all authority has been given to me on heaven and in earth. Right? Okay, so there's no more authority other than that. So go. The kings don't rule, I do. Bad people don't rule, I do. Culture changes don't rule, I do. Supreme courts don't rule, I do. Go, 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 is what he says, right? So, I've got four observations I want to make on this text, and then we'll, we'll, we'll close in prayer. Just four things that really have struck me. The first one is this. God's word cannot be bound. That's just the lesson that I've learned. Even though there was persecution, even though Peter has to run off into hiding, even though people, you know, one leader's been killed and many people have been beaten and scourged, God's word cannot be bound. I referenced this earlier, 2 Timothy 2.9. Paul says, I suffer hardship. I'm even in prison. I'm bound in prison. But he says, but the word of God is not bound. There's the hope. If you find yourself thinking as you're watching the changes, as you get older, you become more aware of the things that change. And you could stand at those, those changes and say, it's all going down. The, the, the ship is sinking. Remember Paul, he's saying, listen, I'm in prison, but God isn't. I'm in prison, but his gospel isn't. I'm in prison, but his spirit is still ruling and reigning. And Jesus is the king, right? The, right? Here's the reality. God's word cannot be bound. Second truth. The political agenda of the world is not final. It doesn't matter what Herod did. It doesn't matter what Nero's going to do next. It doesn't matter. God is the sovereign leader. We live in a day when it's easy to be afraid, isn't it? Man, you just like turn on the news on your drive home, and it's just like, wow. People shooting at police stations and, you know, all kinds of stuff going on in the world. And you think, wow, you know, I mean, I don't know if you ever thought this, but sometimes you think, oh, we should go to the mall. I need to get shoes. I don't know if I want to go to a mall. <laughs> like, I don't know if somebody's going to walk in there and start shooting at people. 
I mean, it's easy to feel that way if all you're absorbing your brain with is the news, right? But here's the reality. Those agendas, those political agendas, those cultural agendas, they're not sovereign. They don't have the final word. God does. God has the final word. Third observation. This is something I didn't point it out in the sermon, but I'll show it to you in the text. The same spirit that rescues is the same spirit that judges. What I want you to notice is that in verse 7, it says the angel of the Lord freed Peter. In verse 23, the angel of the Lord killed Herod. What's amazing to me is that the very power that God uses to bring judgment and, and protection and sometimes stopping people is that very same power that is present with us. You realize something. When you go into this world, when Ambria gets on a plane and flies over to India and, and she's out there, in a part, away from family, away from her people she grew up with, she's not alone because the very God that saved her, surrounded her, protecting her. And that's that same spirit that will bring judgment to the world one day. That's how much power is around us. We don't walk into this world without power. We walk in connected to the very God who rules everything. The same spirit that rescues is the same that judges. And the fourth thing, this is the hard one too, but God's plans do include suffering. We do live in a world that doesn't like to suffer. We want everything fixed. We want to go somewhere and get it all done. And if somebody doesn't fix it, we get mad at them and then move on and get, you know, something else. And it's just our world, right? If I buy a phone, I want that phone to work, right? And when the phone doesn't work, I go and say, hey, this doesn't work. And the person, and I expect that person to either give me a new phone or fix it right there. It's just, right? It's, just, it's our culture. But God actually said this, listen, I'm sending you out as lambs among wolves, And part of the journey is going to have pain. This is going to be a journey where you will have to die to yourself and die to your love of the kingdom of man and fall in love with the kingdom of God. And you're going to have to live for that kingdom, giving up everything for this kingdom. That is the call. That is the call. Jesus made that clear. Pick up your cross and follow me. And in some cases, it means some people will die. For the faith. In other places, it might mean that you're going to have to give up the things that you love or the honor you want or the respect that you feel you deserve or whatever it is that, that you're holding on to. To say, you know what, I would rather share the gospel here and endure the pain that comes than give up the gospel to get the pleasure now. Because God's plan does include suffering. God didn't spare those believers from punishment and he didn't spare James from getting his head cut off. And eventually, Peter does get martyred. But here's the reality. It's all worth it for one reason. Because we get to be used by God to fulfill his promise to bring people from every tribe and nation into his kingdom. And we get to be used for that. And one day when we're in eternity and this temporal thing is truly temporal, it truly is temporal, we'll say, man, I'm glad I live for the eternal rather than the temporal, even if it meant suffering. So, Suffering does not mean that God isn't faithful. It just means that he will use it to carry out his purposes. So those are some things to think about. And as we go into this world, as we leave here, I'm hoping that your eyes are directed not on the things that frustrate you 
about the culture or about the changes that go on. And as you get older, more and more changes happen. But that you get your eyes on the one who never changes and the one who is in control and the one who rules over all things. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for this powerful chapter, how it sets the table for us to think about your mission. Lord, all of us in here feel like we're bound to this world. We feel like we're bound to the people around us. We're bound to the poor decisions of people around us. We're bound to the, to the sins of people around us. That we're, we're being brought down by the culture, brought down by people, brought down by situations. God, free us from thinking that way. God, I desire we have the freedom that, that is in Paul. When he says, yeah, I'm in prison. I'm literally bound by chains, but you're not bound, God. So I'm free. I'm freer now than I ever have been. God, may we have that heart. May our eyes be fixed on you and not on ourselves, not what we want out of this world. But instead, seeing that you will carry on your work, your word will multiply, your people will be sent out, your mission will continue and that you can't be stopped. Thank you, God, that we can have our eyes fixed on that. May that encourage our hearts. May we leave here today celebrating you and your glory. In Christ's name, amen.